This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you're new, make sure you subscribe to get new episodes every Thursday. Now, on the 850th anniversary of an event that shook medieval Europe, we're looking back at the murder of Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and how it happened. We'll also discuss how King Henry II, whose knights carried out this crime back in 1170, tried to salvage his tattered reputation afterwards. And we'll investigate how the building of Dover Castle's Great Tower for the King might be traced back to Becket's assassination. Joining us to unravel the story is Senior Properties Historian for English Heritage, Dr Stephen Brindle. Hi Charles. Now before we get into Becket's murder, can you tell us a bit about his background and his rise to power? Well, Thomas, the son of Gilbert Becket, a rich London merchant, he studied at Merton Priory and as a teenager, he joined the household of Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury, and he undertook missions to Rome for him. And in 1155, when Becket would have been about 25 years old, he was born in 1120, he was appointed Chancellor, head of the King's administration. He had a very quick mind, it was devoted to Henry's interests, and the King came to rely on him, and he thought Becket was just the man to help in his campaign to extend royal authority, in particular authority over the Church. You touched on that appointment of Chancellor, it's nothing like the modern version that we have today. Uh, you think of it as being like the Prime Minister, really. So like a right-hand man, really. Absolutely. And how did Henry notice that Becket would be potentially his Chancellor, his right-hand man? Oh, at Archbishop Theobald's recommendation. He'd served Theobald in his household. He undertook diplomatic missions for the Archbishop to Rome. He was clearly very quick and clever, and the Archbishop recommended him to the King. So in 1155, he's appointed Chancellor, and then in 1162, when the Archbishop died, Henry nominated Becket to succeed him as Archbishop. Becket wasn't even an ordained priest at the time, but the king got his way, so Becket was ordained priest and then immediately became Archbishop of Canterbury, the senior priest in England. It sounds as though that was a really fast-tracked career path and uh, serendipitous as a result of the fact that uh, the previous archbishop died. Yes, I, I think Archbishop Theobald had obtained a good age and he'd been Becket's chief patron, but given that Becket wasn't even an ordained priest, I think the archbishop might have been quite surprised at, at, this, at these swift developments. Yes, this is quite a crucial thing, I think, in the story, isn't mm. it? It's almost like um, a bit of a power grab, really, from Henry... Well, in Henry's case, there was a particular agenda here. It's quite difficult for us today to grasp the extraordinary status the church had then. I mean, not only did it have a near monopoly over literacy, and it had spiritual authority, and it held the keys to the kingdom of heaven, it got richer with each passing year, as the faithful gave it ever more money and property. And furthermore, the church owed its ultimate loyalty to Rome, to the Pope and it was very jealous of its independence. And there was a bone of contention between the church and monarchs that under canon law, a priest could not be tried in any civil, that is any royal court. Clergymen, no matter what crime they'd committed, could only be tried in a church court. And Henry II wanted to bring churchmen, like everyone else, under the authority of the crown. 
And so when he nominated Becket to succeed Archbishop Theobald as the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1162, he thought that he would be installing his Chancellor, the ultimate royal insider, to do just this. But when Becket was installed in post, he went native in the most dramatic possible way. And he went over to the church's side. He came to believe that the church's cause was ultimately superior to any king's. And he refused to do what the king had expected him to do. So effectively, King Henry II was almost hoping that his chancellor would become a sort of church puppet for him. Yes. And he very much did not. So this, I think, is where the relationship starts to fray. King Henry seems to think he's getting one thing and getting a lot of power and control. And then suddenly his Archbishop of Canterbury, who he's given the role through almost like this made up rule, and goes rogue. <laughs> yes, Beckett had something like a personality change. He stopped wearing expensive clothes. He started fasting. He started wearing a hair shirt under his robes. That is something that's deliberately uncomfortable to mortify the flesh. He became convinced that the church's cause was greater than any king's and that protecting it from earthly authority was a sacred duty. So in 1162-3, Henry was bringing forward proposed legal reforms, the constitutions of Clarendon, which would have extended the authority of the royal courts over clergymen. And Becket refused to agree, despite intense royal pressure. Then he seemed to capitulate, then he rode back. Then in 1164, Henry summoned a meeting of the Great Council at Nottingham Castle. Becket attended, but still refused to recognise the constitutions of Clarendon, and fearing that he was going to be arrested, he fled into exile in France. That's in 1164, and Becket was in exile for six years. We know that he eventually came back to England after these six years. When and why did he return? Pope Alexander III obviously took the church's side himself in this dispute, but was worried by the intensity of the dispute and the damage it was doing to the standing of the church in England. And he negotiated a compromise of sorts, whereby Henry wouldn't insist on Becket's personal agreement this, and Becket returned to England early in 1170. But relations between him and the king were still very strained, and the church refused to recognise the, the constitutions of Clarendon. 1170 is obviously the key year. We, we know that this is the year where Becket eventually dies. Um, yeah. What were those key events that led up to Becket's murder? Obviously the first one would be the fact that he's come back to England, puts him in a vulnerable position. Mm. Yeah, in June 1170, Henry wanted to have his eldest son, another Henry, who's known to history as the Young King, crowned as joint king this was an important step in assuring the, the succession to the throne the young king is not really widely remembered by the public because he died before his father so he never actually got to succeed but having him crowned which was a fairly common thing to do for kings with their heirs was a way of assuring the succession and ensuring that he would be recognized as king now, normally, the Archbishop of Canterbury should have done this, but Henry just felt his relations with Becket were too strained. And so he got the Archbishop of York and two other bishops to perform the ceremony instead. Mm -hmm. But Becket saw this as another royal slight on the authority of the church, and he promptly excommunicated all three of the churchmen involved. 
That's quite passive-aggressive, really, isn't it? Um, a piece of advanced passive-aggressive behaviour. Yeah. It's not like um, they, they did anything wrong. Uh, well, quite, but Beckett's point would have been that they shouldn't have done what the King told them, that they should have asked him as their superior and the Pope what to do. But mm. that was Beckett being difficult. He had become a deliberate controversialist, and there are yeah, signs of definite passive-aggressive behaviour there, I think. But obviously, this passive aggression ends up in some pretty violent act in the centre point of Mm. the English church. How do we get to the murder? Henry was in Normandy at the time. The king was a formidable personality with a very volatile temper. And he exploded with rage and he berated his household as a pack of miserable curs and traitors who stood idly by while their king was treated with contempt by a low-born priest. So four of his household knights, Reginald Fitzurse, Hugh de Morville, William Tracy and Richard Le Breton, saw this as an opportunity to prove their loyalty. And they left the court in secret, and they crossed to England, and they reached Canterbury on the 29th of December, 1170. And they left their weapons outside the Priory, and they went in to try and arrest Becket on the King's behalf. And it's thought that that's what they thought they were going to do. They were going to arrest him and bring him back to France so he could be tried for treasonable contempt of royal authority. But Becket refused to come quietly, so the knights went back out, retrieved their weapons, and returned to make the arrest by force as night fell. And they caught up with the archbishop as he was going into the cathedral where the monks of Canterbury were chanting vespers. And he clung to a column and the confrontation became violent, and one of them drew a sword, and they cut him down with their swords, dead, actually in the north transept of Canterbury Cathedral, and shocked at what they'd done, they fled into the night. Do we know how brutal the murder and the cutting down was? What what kind of wounds were inflicted? Uh, we are told that one of them almost cut the top of Beckett's head off. So, yes, the confrontation became a violent one. These were rough, violent men, trained as fighters, and Beckett, I think, perhaps subconsciously almost wanted to be martyred, uh, had come to see the confrontation between him and the king in a very extreme way. But however it happened, the knights killed him, and they would have claimed that they were trying to fulfil the king's orders. Of course, Henry II didn't actually want his archbishop dead. He just wanted to um, send him a message, really. Yeah. Yes. And also bring him to justice, potentially. I'm sure what they thought they were doing was arresting the Archbishop, and the murder was accidental. So, Henry has blood on his hands at this stage. He's had this terrible rage. His knights have Mm. gone out to try and prove themselves, not on his orders, by the sounds of things. And how does Henry react? Henry reacts initially by more or less pretending it hasn't happened. And one of the oddest things about the story is that he never took any steps to to punish any of the four knights who were never imprisoned, were never punished in any way for it. Hmm. It's one of the oddest points about all this. But there was public outrage across Europe and a sense of great shock. And Henry tried for a couple of years to brazen it out but it had done great damage to his reputation and his standing. And this was almost certainly a factor 
when rebellion broke out in 1173. Um, by the way, in 1173, Becket was actually canonised by Pope Alexander III. Very shortly after the murder, Becket was laid in a tomb in the crypt of Canterbury Cathedral, and people began to report miracles at his tomb. And within months of the burial, there was a steady stream of pilgrims visiting Becket's tomb in Canterbury and saying that they'd been cured of diseases, being saved from misfortunes by praying to St Thomas. So really the situation could hardly have been more embarrassing for King Henry and could hardly have been more undermining of royal authority. His archbishop, who he'd had this huge row with and who had been murdered by his household knights, who he had failed to punish, was canonised as a saint and was now working miracles. It's a pretty remarkable turn of events, really. Henry Um, has completely lost any sort of sense of power and reputation by this point. It was terrible for Henry's reputation, and it was very likely a contributory factor to a great rebellion which broke out against him. His reputation was so profoundly tarnished, and reputation was everything in the Middle Ages. So tell us a bit more about this rebellion, then. Uh, He was already on very bad terms with his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and with his elder sons, Henry and Richard. And Eleanor ran away from court, and she encouraged Henry and Richard to rebel against their father, to demand a greater share of power... I think his Henry's brand had become toxic in modern parlance, mm. and his sons rebelled against him in alliance with his enemies, Louis VII of France and William II of Scotland. Wow. It really sounds like everyone is against him by this point. The whole of uh, it's a perfect storm. At any rate, Henry realised the time had come to make his peace with Becket, and that the he would have to say sorry. So how do you say sorry for murdering an archbishop. Well, in July 1174, which was at the worst of the rebellion, he negotiated the terms of an elaborate act of penance with the monks of Canterbury. He would walk into the city barefoot and wearing sackcloth. He would prostrate himself before the shrine. He would be whipped by every monk of the priory, of whom there were around a hundred. He would spend the night in prayer and penitence by the tomb of his former friend. And he did all of these things, including the flogging. Yes. Yes. It was a dramatic act of penance. But the really extraordinary thing is what happened next. On the very next day, Henry heard that his justicia, Ranulf Glanville, who had remained loyal had just defeated King William II of Scotland and actually taken him prisoner at Annick in Northumberland. William II of Scotland had invaded Northumberland in support of the rebellion. Ranulph Glanville had actually defeated him some days before, but Henry heard about it the next day. And it seemed as if his prayers had immediately been answered. Within months, the rebellion was over, his sons had begged him forgiveness, and Queen Eleanor had started what was to be a very long term of house arrest at Old Serum and Winchester, and it seemed clear that Becket and God had accepted the king's repentance. And these extraordinary developments really turned Henry's relationship to the Becket cult around. 
and he became, in this bizarre transformation, the Beckett cult's number one fan, and he returned to pray at the shrine on several occasions. So, they do say that truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, This is surely an instance, I think we say. His archbishop, who had been murdered because of his outburst of temper and been canonised as a saint and become object of pilgrimage, well, the king has done penance and is now his number one fan. What was the significance of the invasion from Scotland that helped Henry restore his reputation? Oh, his sons, rebelling against his authority, had sought support, armed support, from their father's enemies, Louis VII of France and William II of Scotland. I think they thought they were either going to overthrow their father and replace him on the throne, or they were going to demand a larger share of authority. But how they thought they were going to do this in alliance with his enemies, I'm not quite sure, but it's what they did. Hmm. How did the invasion from Scotland then result in a retreat? Oh, William II was captured and most of his army was destroyed, either killed or scattered at Hannock. No, they would they would have had to flee home. Right. Uh, and their king was now Henry's prisoner. So it's it was a combination of that victory and Henry's dramatic act of penance that saved him, really. Well, to the medieval mind, for such a dramatic act of penance then to be rewarded immediately by news of a great victory on his behalf could not have seemed accidental. So from a perfect storm of events to a perfect victory? Yes. I mean, whether Henry's repentance or not was sincere or not, I would have thought that to almost any medieval person the sequel was so dramatic as to make any medieval person believe that Henry's repentance had been must have been sincere because it had evidently been accepted. <laughs> By God and, and the church and the, and the public. Mm. But is there any evidence that it was sincere? And what are your thoughts on that? My thought is that Henry was a very volatile man and a man very dedicated to the extension of royal power, but he was a medieval man and he believed in the immortality of the soul. He must have been desperately anxious about the consequences of Becket's murder for his own soul, especially if Becket was now acknowledged as a saint. He he must have been filled with tormented anxiety, and I think at some level his penance must have been sincere. But for a king to abase himself in such a dramatic way, a king who of all people ought to be proud and arrogant in the medieval mind, was a huge thing to have to do, hugely undermining of his authority in itself. But as we've seen, his penance seems to have been accepted, Mm. because there it was, William the Lion was captured and defeated. To the medieval mind, that would have been an extraordinarily powerful sign, just as much as the signs of the supposed cures at Canterbury were that Becket was indeed a saint. It's what people believed and wanted to believe, the construction their beliefs put on events that, that mattered here. And so Canterbury, by this time, was the greatest pilgrimage site in England. You've just mentioned the Becket murder sparking pilgrimages mm. to Canterbury there, to his tomb. What did the pilgrims see when they got there, apart from this tomb? And what did they expect to happen? Becket was buried in a tomb in the crypt of Canterbury Cathedral, which wasn't like a cellar. It was at uh, above ground level, quite a high vaulted space, but with the much higher choir of the cathedral above it. And the pilgrims would have come in through separate entrances around this sort of long vaulted undercroft. 
and we know that the shrine had a base which had little niches which you could put your head in effectively and get your head actually close to the body of the saint. In the medieval mind, a saint was someone who, by virtue of martyrdom or by their own extraordinary goodness, had gone straight to heaven when they died and was at the side of God and in a position to intercede with God for those who were still on earth. So the tomb, the shrine of a saint, was a place where earth and heaven came close. And Beckett's shrine began to work miracles, began to work miraculous cures, or so people believed, and that was the point, within a couple of months of his death. So the monks of Canterbury began to solicit donations and to sell relics, sort of fragments of the little piece of the the robe that he'd been wearing, were sold and put in Beckett caskets to be taken elsewhere as as the object of um, of devotion elsewhere. And there are quite a lot of these Limoges Beckett caskets in existence. It's quite funny, the idea of monetising someone's death uh, and monetising uh, the robes that he was wearing. Isn't that a bit, a bit crude? Not in the medieval mind it wouldn't have been. The money would itself have been um, sanctified, purified by being dedicated to a spiritual end the way medieval people would have seen it money and material goods were indeed gross but things which were dedicated to god and given to the church were thereby sanctified they'd rather turned it and seen it the other way round i suppose this is another thing really we sometimes see history through the lens of our own modern experience don't we our own our own somewhat more secular mindset yes exactly So that's Canterbury covered, and it's Mm. a massive pilgrimage site by this point. And what sort of year are we talking now? Because obviously the death is 1170. Beckett is canonised in 1173. The rebellion breaks out in 1173, uh, and Henry does penance in the summer of 1174. And around the same time, William II of Scotland is captured, and by the autumn of 1174, the rebellion is over. In the same year, the beautiful choir of Canterbury Cathedral was devastated by fire. It was burning at the upper level in the choir, so Beckett Shrine wasn't damaged, but the choir above it was. So the monks of Canterbury got a French mason called William of Sons to rebuild the choir, and from 1175 onwards, Canterbury was not only the most popular pilgrimage site in England, in the crypt, Above it, there was a building site. And so Canterbury Cathedral was being rebuilt with the greatest possible splendour in the new French Gothic style from about 1175 on. I presume that sort of adds to the allure of the Beckett mystique, doesn't it? Yes, that the church above his shrine was being rebuilt particularly splendidly and paid for by contributions from pilgrims to the shrine, of course. So that's Canterbury covered... Now, Dover Castle's Great Tower, we said in the introduction that this might somehow be linked to all these events. How does Dover become involved in this story? By another series of unforeseeable developments, really. Up to this time, the kings of England had never spent very much time in Dover, or indeed in Kent. For one thing, Dover wasn't on their normal route to Normandy. They normally sailed from Portsmouth or Southampton. And there was very little royal demesne, that is, land directly held by the Crown in Kent. Most of it was held by religious institutions, actually, like Christchurch Cathedral Priory, or the 
Abbey of St Augustine, which is also in Canterbury. But Dover did stand on the shortest sea crossing from Europe to England and on the road from Dover to London. So it was the shortest way from the continent to Canterbury and foreign pilgrims were already arriving in Dover on their way to visit the shrine. And in the summer of 1179, King Louis VII of France himself arrived. So he has a complicated relationship with Henry II. He's Henry's nominal overlord as King of France. Henry is the Duke of Normandy, the Count of Anjou, and the Duke of Aquitaine. But Henry is actually the more powerful of the two. But they also disliked each other, and also Europe was against Henry in the years previous. So did they patch things up before... Um, um, the, the, well, the, the, they, the Frenchman's arrival. They had patched things up, yes, and Louis the Seventh had had to accept that Henry the Second's authority had been restored. Louis himself had known Becket; he'd given shelter to Becket during the six years that he was in exile in France, mm. in eleven sixty-four to seventy. But in the summer of eleven seventy-nine, Louis the Seventh had a massive personal crisis. He only had one son, the fourteen-year-old Philip the heir to the French throne, who fell seriously ill. And King Louis had known Becket himself, and in this supreme personal crisis, he decided to go to England to ask Becket for help. I mean, after all, he had the example there of King Henry doing this spectacular public penance, and his enemies, at any rate, his other enemy, King William of Scotland, being defeated and captured as if by magic almost immediately. So King Louis would have had some reason for thinking that prayers to the Archbishop would actually be answered. And so in this supreme personal crisis, he sends word to King Henry that he's going to come and visit himself. And his messengers got to King Henry, and Henry dashed across country. Louis was already on the road by this time, and King Henry got to Dover just in time to welcome Louis VII of France on the beach. It was the first time a reigning foreign monarch had ever visited England. It was, in effect, the first state visit in English history, though in rather unforeseen circumstances. Absolutely. But it sounds as though that uh, Louis's visit from France was less of a state visit and more of a personal one. Yes, but it was still a pretty big deal. I mean, here was Louis was Henry's nominal overlord in France, another reigning monarch, there was no formally worked out protocol for what to do when one king entered another's realm. It wasn't a thing monarchs usually did. Hmm. So a protocol would have had to be worked out for how they met each other on the beach. And Louis then went to Canterbury with Henry and they prayed together at the shrine. Was there any other sort of diplomacy going on at the time? Or was it literally just... Louis coming to try and invoke the saintly powers of the dead Thomas Beckett. This was a personal visit with a profoundly personal motive for King Louis. But of course, in the Middle Ages, the personal became the political because uh, rulers and their families embodied the state, embodied the nation. And the sickness of the, the teenage heir to the throne threatened the whole well-being of France, threatened the future of the French crown. It was um, quite an episode in Anglo-French cultural relations. There was Canterbury Cathedral being rebuilt through the times of a French mason and the kings of England and France praying at the tomb of Thomas Becket, the Anglo-French murdered Archbishop of Canterbury in the crypt, who both of them had known personally very well. 
It's a very strange situation altogether. And Henry then accompanied Louis back to Dover, and he'd have known that Canterbury Cathedral was going to be rebuilt in the most magnificent possible way. But Dover, of course, was another matter. It was uh, what you might call a basic fortress. It had never been a royal residence, and he'd had nowhere decent in which to entertain the King of France and half his court, who included the Count of Flanders and lots of other notables. And I think Henry would have felt embarrassed by the facilities, so to speak, that were available at Dover. And it was in the next year that he started a mammoth rebuilding of Dover Castle, and these events are almost certainly connected. So, in effect, the fact that he had to meet Louis on the beach in this sort of very kind of casual, non-stately kind of way, he then realised that he needed a giant gatehouse, a welcome uh, Exactly, point. a gatehouse puts it very well. He'd had to greet Louis on the beach, but there'd been no castle to repair him. No, there was a castle, but there was no great palace in which to entertain him. And in 1180, Henry began to rebuild Dover Castle at extraordinary scale and with a grandeur which suggests that it was conceived for especially symbolic purposes. At the centre of the castle, he built the Great Tower, an enormous square keep conceived to be a landmark that would be visible for miles out to sea. It was the last in long succession of these great square keeps that had been built in France and England by Henry's ancestors going back for centuries. Henry's ancestors on both sides, the Counts of Anjou and the Dukes of Normandy and Kings of England, had all built such buildings and they're now understood by historians to have had a variety of symbolic functions. They were palaces in which to receive visitors, and they were also great symbols of lordship. I understand that the work begins in 1180 on the Dover Castle Great Tower, is that right? Yeah, and it was probably habitable by 1185, and Henry visited several more times and received a number of grand visitors to England there between 1185 and his Henry's death in 1189. So it seems fairly clear that the Great Tower at Dover was not merely planned in this way, but was actually used in this way on a number of occasions. And also it became this perfect arrival point for the pilgrimage sort of industry and the road to Canterbury. It would, in effect, have marked Dover as being the king's place, even if the Becket cult inevitably dominated in Canterbury at Dover, Henry could impose himself with this huge new fortress, which would have said, you are entering the realm of the King of England, using this sort of ancestral building form. Mm. And by this point, of course, his reputation has been restored because he he went through the penance in 1174. So a considerable amount of time has passed by that point. So it sounds to me, Stephen, that the building of the Great Tower at Dover Castle was the embodiment and of the restoration of King Henry II's reputation following Becket's murder. Yes, the Great Tower at Dover uses an ancestral building form, uh, the palace keep, which had been used by Henry's ancestors on, uh, on both sides, the Counts of Anjou and the Dukes of Normandy and Kings of England, as a symbol of royal authority. It was the 
ultimate architectural symbol of royal authority really and there it is on the hill overlooking Dover Harbour and visible for miles out to sea as a way of saying you are entering the realms of the King of England and the building itself is planned in an expressly symbolic ceremonial way with a long entrance route that goes all the way up to the second floor and with the first and second floors both laid out as a pair of hall and chamber with attendant rooms round them, as if to house the king on one floor and a great guest on another. And there are all sorts of odd features in the planning of the building which suggest that it was planned with ceremonial in mind. So it wasn't designed to be a normal residence, it was designed for occasional ceremonial use as a place for grand ceremonies of welcome Mm. Uh, and also of farewell, because the grand visitors might have been leaving too. Of course. Now, the Great Tower is a, a key point in this story, but one thing that we haven't picked up on yet is what happened after Henry and King Louis from France prayed at Thomas Becket's shrine. Did Philip, Prince Philip, uh, Louis's son, recover from his illness? Yes, he did. And the sequel to that is itself absolutely full of ironies. Louis died in the next year, having contracted an illness on his journey, apparently, and Philip succeeded to the French throne in 1180, and is known to history as Philip Augustus. And he had very strained and difficult relations with Henry II, and then with Henry's elder son, Richard I Lionheart. And when Richard died and was succeeded by Henry's youngest son, King John, Philip Augustus managed by a combination of diplomacy, political manoeuvring and armed force to undermine and then destroy Angevin rule, rule of uh, Henry's dynasty, in most of their domains. He took first Anjou and Touraine and then the Duchy of Normandy back from Henry's son, King John. So Philip Augustus, the boy who was who was sick and who was cured, went on to destroy the Angevin Empire in France. It was um, <laughs> it's quite a sequel. Yes, was Henry alive when Philip came to power? Yes, Louis the Seventh died in 1180. Philip Augustus was the un- the young king of France in the last nine years of Henry's life. In that period, the Angevins would still have overshadowed the French crown in France. And then the tables began to turn during the reign of Henry's eldest son, Richard I, the Lionheart. And both Richard and Philip went on crusade, went on the Third Crusade. And there was a a very expressed rivalry between them and relations between them deteriorated badly. But Richard was far too formidable a personality for Philip to be able to precede him against him effectively. But Richard's younger brother, John, who succeeded to the throne of England in 1199, that he was another matter. And after John's accession, Philip reconquered a large part of the Angevin dynasty's possessions in France. The County of Anjou and the Duchy of Normandy itself fell to him between 1203 and 1205. Do you think that Henry went to his death regretting that he had allowed Louis VII from France to come to pray for his son Philip, who eventually went on to become quite a powerful figure? 
Uh, Henry couldn't have known all this at the time. Henry could hardly have known that the Angevin Empire was going to be destroyed by this boy who Beckett had saved. But Henry would have known that such things were far beyond any mortal man's authority in any case. Mm. Henry ended his life in a fairly bad place with his eldest son, Richard, in rebellion against him again, in alliance with Philip Augustus. So Henry had family issues all his life, you might say. Meanwhile, Thomas Beckett's sainthood uh, lives Mm. on. And Beckett Shrine in Canterbury was the most popular in England, and when Chaucer wrote his Canterbury Tales in the late 14th century, he conceived it as a group, a varied group of people travelling from southern Canterbury and telling them stories along the way. It was a great part of English life, and something which, which all English people of means and many who were very poor would have wanted to do before they died, go to Canterbury and pray at the shrine of their own martyr St Thomas. So how convinced are you that the Great Tower at Dover Castle is linked to Thomas Beckett's murder? Well, very grand medieval buildings, whether they're castles or churches, we know now very often had symbolic value and symbolic meaning for their builders. And Dover seems a prime case of this. We know that there was a large castle there previously. There were elaborate provisions for its defence. It was in a strategically important position. But Henry II nevertheless spent vast sums of money, thousands and thousands of pounds, rebuilding it in the 1180s, directly after Louis VII visit. And it seems that he clear, clear that he did this for symbolic reasons, because castles had this supreme symbolic value as symbols of lordship, as well as their practical value. And the only way, really, that one can understand Henry's decision to put this vast new stone thing there at this late stage in his reign is that there was this new symbolic, metaphorical reason for doing so, because it was now commanding the route Canterbury, the route to the shrine of Becket, who had been his friend, and then became his enemy, who was murdered, some said, by his fault, and with whom he'd made peace. So it was like it was a, a seal in stone on the reconciliation between Henry and the murdered Archbishop. So that, I presume, Stephen, is how we can summarise this rather convoluted story. But it all sort of wraps up quite neatly in the end. It does, although it does rather bear out saying that truth is stranger than fiction and that uh, that you could not make it up. It's such a strange accumulation of chances. I mean, if Beckett and Henry hadn't fallen out, if Beckett hadn't been murdered, if Henry hadn't done penance, if Prince Philip hadn't fallen sick, if Louis VII hadn't made his sudden decision in these desperate circumstances to come on pilgrimage, the Great Tower at Dover would never have been built. But it was, and so it survives as a legacy of these rather strange series of events. It was a symbol of royal authority which had been severely shaken, but which had stood and which Henry had managed to reassert. And today it just seems a familiar and well-loved symbol of England. But of course at the time it would have meant all sorts of different things. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to gorge on the history of midwinter meals and festive feasting through the ages. This piece of flesh was deboned, boiled, preserved in things like vinegar, and when it was served, it was served in thick slices. 
I actually wonder if the modern tradition of the Christmas ham in some way relates to this tradition of the ball's head. Thanks for listening. See you next time.